Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, this time of the year we always focus on just the wonderful gift that we have that transformed history, that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to take on human flesh, to become a human being, to add humanity to his deity so that he could go to the cross, so that he could pay the penalty for our sins and that we might have eternal life. And this is the gift that we have been studying in Romans, the gift of righteousness. And the righteousness is not something that any human being can earn. It's not something that any human being can produce. For as Isaiah said, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags because there is nothing that a corrupt, tainted, fallen, sinful creature can do to overcome that deficit. We must rely exclusively, completely, upon you to provide the solution and that you make that magnificent gift available to us simply by faith, just as you did with Abraham in Genesis 15, that we are righteous and declared righteous by faith alone, just as David, just as Moses, just as all of the Old Testament believers were justified by simply trusting in your promise of a Savior who would take away the sins of the world. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Romans and study this important concept of peace, we pray that you would help us as we go through this material and that we may understand it more fully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We started off last time looking at Romans chapter 5. Don't turn there now. We're not going to be there more than a couple of sentences worth, and then we'll be back in Isaiah Uh, Isaiah chapter 9. But Paul begins Romans 5 drawing out the first consequence or the first implication of the fact that we have been declared righteous by faith alone. And that is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so having brought into the uh, discussion now, this consequence of justification that we have peace with God, wherein we had formerly been at enmity with God. Uh, Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, just stressing what's stated in that first line, that we were Enemies, we being every human being born at enmity with God. As I got to thinking about the concept of peace, we, I reflected on the fact that I had often heard said that, that peace in the Bible was always juxtaposed to a mental attitude, state of worry or anxiety. However, that's not quite true when you analyze the, the data, especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, peace is always are almost always related to uh, the absence of conflict, but not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of harmonious relationships, not just uh, not just the absence of military conflict, but 
a genuine alliance between those who were at one time enemies. And of course, one of the most well-known places where the term peace is used is in the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, how are we to understand this phrase, Prince of Peace? That is very important because we all are familiar with the Christmas story of how on the night that uh, the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that the angels, the armies of God, appeared in the heavens singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to, depending on how it's translated, to uh, men of goodwill. And we'll look at that before we're done this evening. So there's a connection between that announcement and this verse. Often that announcement is abused and twisted and made to uh, uh, be a support for some sort of pacifism or the absence of war, things of that nature. But that is not really what uh, that verse says or what this verse says ultimately. It's not for today, as we'll see. The word for peace in the Old Testament is the word shalem, from whence we get our word shalom, which is used over 250 times in the Old Testament and usually translated with one of three words in the Greek uh, translation when the rabbis in Alexandria and Egypt translated the Old Testament uh, into, into Greek. They used either the word salvation or the word peace or the word complete, which is a very good uh, translation for shalom. It indicates the absence of physical war, conflict, or strife, as I pointed out last time, about 50 times. In some cases, it refers to a state of wholeness where there's not a state of antagonism or enmity with God, but it is clear from Isaiah 32:17 and other passages that that state of harmony between God and man, as Paul has said in Romans 3, 4, and 5, is the result of man possessing righteousness. A third meaning has to do with the peace offerings that were given as part of the Levitical offerings. Now, last time I took us to the context. It's very important to look at the context of, of Isaiah uh, 9, 6. And to do that, we have to go back to Isaiah 7. And some a couple of people said last night, boy, that was a lot to go through last week. So I thought, well, I'll give you a nice review uh, tonight and uh, make sure everybody understands this. To me, this is one of just a fabulous prophecy, a tremendous section of Scripture, and there's a lot here that uh, we just don't have time to really dig into. So the first thing that we have to do always is to look at the context of any Scripture because uh, sometimes we get people get the mis misunderstanding that when you just read something, you just open your Bible, go to a chapter and read it, that you can easily understand what is going on there. And that's not always true, because we're, whenever you open the Scripture, unless you're starting in Genesis 1-1, you're starting in the middle of a conversation. One night last week, I had to go to uh, up, run up late to the uh, grocery store, and I wasn't that late. It was like 8 or 9 o'clock. I like to listen to talk radio, and so when I got in the car, Coming out of the out of the grocery store, I turned the radio on. It was about five minutes to nine, and a caller had called in and was talking about the health problems of someone, and I had no idea who she was talking about and how there there was possibly liver failure or some other problem, and that. Uh, that she continued to feed him, and he continued to lose weight. And I'm sitting here thinking, is she talking about her husband? Because she sounded a little older. I thought, well, it's probably not her father. And then as she talked some more, I thought, well, I'm not sure if it's her husband. Maybe it's her father. And then they closed out the conversation, and the doctor who she was talking about made some suggestions. And then they went to the show's closing, where I found out it was a veterinarian show. 
and she was talking about her dog. (laughs) See, there's always little things that we might miss that cause us to make guesses that are wrong about whatever it is that are being talked about in Scripture. So we have to always understand context. Now I'm going to show you a sign here in a minute that appeared outside of a business in... um, in Florida, and I bet most of you, most of us, would think that this was a rather inflammatory sign. We would rather do business with a thousand Al Qaeda terrorists than with one single American soldier. What's the context? It's outside of a funeral home. <laughs> context is extremely important. So when we look at Isaiah chapter 7, The context is war. The context is an alliance that is developed against the house of David by the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrian kingdom because they have tried to woo King Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them in a war against Assyria. And Ahaz at least was smart enough to not join them. Now, Ahaz is usually painted in Scripture because the evaluation is of his spiritual nature that he's one of the bad kings, and he is because he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he promoted idolatry. And from that perspective, he's evil. But from what we know of of history, he was also a fairly powerful and fairly intelligent uh, king. The issue that we find in this chapter is the issue related to the house of David. Verse 2 says, it was told to the house of David. Now, I've, I've looked around in other places in Scripture, and this is an uncommon way to address the king of Judah as the house of David. So, obviously, if you're familiar enough with Scripture and you read this phrase, that ought to stand out and say, why is it the emphasis here on the house of David and not King Ahaz. Uh, We looked at the Davidic covenant last week, that there are three elements to the promise of God in the Davidic covenant, and that is a promise of an eternal house, promise of an eternal kingdom, and promise of an eternal throne. Now, right away, we know from the way the text is written in 2 Samuel uh, 12 and 13, for example, God promises that uh, this descendant is identified as your seed, David's seed, so he's human. He's identified as a male, he, and God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's an element right away here that suggests that he's not going to just be human. He's going to be eternal. He's not just going to be a man that lives forever and ever. Uh, his kingdom is established forever, again in verse 16, and David has promised that his throne will be established forever in, uh, at the end of that verse. So three times we have this statement that this is an eternal individual, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. So we have the issue on the war against the house of David. The issue is the security of the Davidic covenant. Is God able to protect the descendant of David on the throne of Judah, or is the the Davidic covenant uh, actually threatened? So God directed Isaiah to take his young son. This is another very important point in in the story here that's not emphasized too much. We just read in the beginning of verse um, verse 3, the Lord tells Isaiah to go out and meet, Sher- uh, meet Ahaz and take his son Sheryashub with him. Young boy. And then the fourth thing we saw was that God gives Isaiah the precise warning for Ahaz. And this begins in verse 4. It's a precise warning, and he uses various commands. He says, take heed, be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. There are four commands there, and all of those commands are are singulars. He's not addressing a group. He's addressing an individual. So God gives Isaiah the uh, precise warning, and it's all based upon singular pronouns. 
Fifth thing we saw is that God then ordered Ahaz to ask for a sign. Said Ahaz, ask for a sign. Now, normally that would be presumptuous for a king to ask God for a sign or for a miracle, but since God is the one who has made the command to ask for a sign, it is presumption and arrogance on the part of Ahaz to not ask for a sign, which is what he says in verse 12. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It may, may sound good, but it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's just distorted. Then Isaiah responds to him in verse 13, and Isaiah responds with a message from the Lord, and he addresses it to the house of David. He doesn't address it to Ahaz. And this is the, uh, the introduction to the key uh, prophecy, messianic prophecy in verse 14. It's addressed to the house of David, which is a plural idea, not to just the singular Ahaz. And basically what Isaiah says, is it a small thing for y'all to weary men? But will y'all weary my God also? Put the y'alls in there so you know it's the southern kingdom of Judah and Isaiah's got a good southern accent. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give y'all a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. It's one word, or actually it's two or three words where it's broken down in the Masoretic text. Im, uh, and then Manu, and then El. El is a word for God. Im is the word with, and then the uh, M-A-N-U, that U, N-U ending is a first person plural, meaning us. So it literally means God with us. Now, this is really an important term. Usually when, and I've seen this so many times, we have an, or, or Christmas time, Christmas message. Let's look at Isaiah 7. Let's look at Isaiah 9, and we don't look at Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8 is really important because it connects 7 and 9 together as a singular unit, and the key word is Emmanuel. The sign is going to be of a virgin, and it is Ha-Alma. The ha there, which I've made uppercase, is the Hebrew definite article, indicating it's not just any virgin, but the virgin, indicating that this is, the readers should know who this is talking about. There should, there's precedent in Scripture, in other words. We ought to be able to look back in Scripture and figure out, is there something that we've heard somewhere before in Scripture that would tell us something about this virgin? Now, there's been a lot of debate about the meaning of the word Alma. There are two words in Hebrew that are potential words for expressing a virgin, but neither are purely or precisely equivalent to the word virgin. The word Alma, if we look at all the ways in which it is used in Scripture, always refers to a young, unmarried woman of marriageable age. There are a couple of places where marriage isn't in the context and the word really doesn't have much around it to clarify it. And uh, it's always amazing. Clear rule of interpreting Scripture is to go with the known and don't try to, uh, try to interpret the clear and explicit with something that is unclear and vague. And yet often people will say, oh, well, see this exception over here in this verse? Well, because we don't really understand this, we can't understand these other 59 uses, which is just backward. Uh, Alma was unmarried. She's young. She's just reached the age of puberty, and unlike our culture, when that happened in the Middle Eastern culture, she's now of marriageable age. And so the, the difference between Betula and uh Alma is that a Betula, Betula was a word that was used for a virgin, an unmarried woman of any age, whereas Alma emphasized that she is very young and has just reached uh, the age where she can be married and have children. The other interesting thing here is that the Hebrew doesn't say, behold, the virgin shall conceive. 
It's much more emphatic than that. It states the virgin is pregnant, or it could be translated, behold, the pregnant virgin. It's a surprise. It's a sign. Behold, the virgin's pregnant. How can that be? There's a sense of, of surprise. There's a sense of, uh, of just being astounded that this has happened. So the wording indicates that there's something extremely unusual going, uh, going on here. Now, one of the problems that we've seen in the way different translations and uh, liberal, especially liberal Christian uh, theologians have tried to handle this is to minimize this. Well, Alma really doesn't mean a virgin. We're going to translate this the young woman. That's happened when they translated the Revised Standard Version back in the uh, back in the 1950s, and it so upset conservatives that there was a boycott on by conservative Christians on the on the whole Revised Standard Version for decades. Anybody who was a Bible believer wouldn't buy that horrible, uh, blasphemous piece of trash because it denied the virgin birth by translating Isaiah uh, uh, 7.14 as simply the young woman. Uh, the Septuagint translators, the rabbis who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, uh, 2nd century or so B.C., before Christ, understood exactly what this was saying, and in the Greek translation, they used the word, the same word we have in Luke, which is parthenos, meaning the virgin. The Parthenon in Greece, which is a very famous uh, temple to uh, Athena, is uh, is there because she is the virgin goddess. That's the, that's the legend. So it's that same word, Parthenon, Parthenos, meaning, meaning uh, that she is a virgin. That's how the Hebrew, that's how the Jewish rabbis understood this as a messianic prophecy, and it was understood to be a messianic prophecy well into the early centuries of Christianity. It wasn't until almost a, a thousand years later that some Jewish rabbis finally were able to co- sort of conjure up a way to interpret this without without uh, sounding like it, it supported the Christians. So the Hebrew text makes it very clear, Behold, the virgin is pregnant, and she will bear a son. So obviously this son is human, human mother, human son, but the son is going to be called Emmanuel meaning God with us. They're naming a human son God, which indicates that this son will have the attributes of deity. Now, the idea that they should understand something about who this virgin is goes back to the promise to, or the, the, when God has the curse, states the curse to uh, Eve in the garden, makes it clear that uh, there's a promise there also. He says, I will put enmity. What's that? That's the lack of peace. I will put enmity between you. Actually, he's addressing the serpent here. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, and the serpent's seed is Satan's seed, or those who follow him in his thinking, between your seed, your descendants, and her seed, a reference to the Messiah. Uh, This is thought to be the first indication of the gospel. He that is her seed shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now in Isaiah seven fourteen, we then see that with this name God with us, we know this is going to be a human, but also divine. Now, then we get to the next verse. Next verse says, Curds and honey, he that is, Emmanuel, shall eat. And then there's a purpose clause stated after this. And last week when I went through this, I was getting somewhat of a hurry to try to cover the next couple of chapters. But the purpose clause here is that, that he may know, that he may come to know. So it, it indicates that, that he's eating this diet for a purpose of coming to learn something, to refuse the evil and choose the good. So this is not a son who will ever choose the evil. He will always choose the good. That supports the view that the divine human child born here uh, is not going to sin. 
Now, there's also a lot of questions as to just what the um, significance is for the curds and honey. And if we look down in the section from uh, 17 and following, we learn that this is not the, the diet as, as some have suggested, and a lot of commentaries uh, will say this, that curds and honey, was the, that was the diet of the, of the aristocracy. These are the, this is the diet of royalty. And, and yet that's just the opposite. If you read through the text at all, you see down in verse 22, for curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. Well, those who are left in the land are those who are left after the horrible uh, deprivations caused by the, by the invasion of the Assyrians. And so curds and honey is an expression of the somewhat restricted and impoverished diet of a people who are under oppression. So the individual here, the child of the virgin who is eating curds and honey, indicates that he is living at a time when Israel is under oppression and that he is learning something in his humanity under oppression, and he sees the consequence of sin, and that teaches him to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, this gets confusing for some people because the key to understanding verses 13, 14, and 15 are the fact that in 13 and 14, we have a focus on you, plural, which refers to the house of David. And then in verse 15, 15 is just a continuation of verse 14 because it's still talking about Emmanuel. So 15 goes with 13 and 14. So that speaks of, of one group. It's speaking to uh, the house of David, a, a promise, a prophecy for the house of David to tell them that God is going to keep the promise to David, the security of the house of David uh, sound, and then there's another change. And in this change, we find that there is the word you used, and it's a second person singular. So we have all these second person singulars, you singular, you singular, you singular, all addressing Ahaz. Then we have three verses dealing with the plural, addressing the house of David, and now we're back to the sign for Ahaz. The sign that is mentioned in verse 14 is a sign for, is a sign for the house of David. And, and this is important, and I haven't stressed this, and I'm not going to get off into this, but you will read 95% of evangelical scholars today who will say that this is an example of dual fulfillment. You have a fulfillment in the near immediate future for Ahaz to give him confidence uh, that his dynasty will not go down. And then you have the far ultimate fulfillment. And this whole idea of dual fulfillment is extremely dangerous in hermeneutics. Uh, the general principle in hermeneutics is the single meaning of Scripture, and there's no such thing as dual fulfillment. There is one fulfillment, and the fulfillment of verse 14 is Jesus Christ, not a not the son that would be born to Isaiah, which is what is usually uh, usually suggested. And the reason that they go that way is they conveniently ignore the singular and plural pronouns. And see, that always flows from people who don't believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, so they play a little fast and loose with the text. Now, this is where uh, it's often assumed in verse 16 when he says, before the child, and in most of your Bibles, I bet the child is uppercase. It is in the New King James Version, but it's n there's no uppercase or lowercase in the, um, in the Hebrew. So verse 16 says, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, now he's addressing Ahaz, so it shifts back to the singular, will be forsaken by both her kings. In other words, you don't need to, before this child can get old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, and the Hebrew there uses, with the definite article with child, it, it's often used as a demonstrative, and so it should be translated, there, uh, it should be translated for before this child shall know to refuse the evil or choose the good before he's old enough to make moral decisions. The land that you dread 
Ahaz, the northern kingdom and the Syrians, will be forsaken by both her kings. So you don't need to worry about this threat. And then there's a promise in, in, that comes up following that that, um, that deals with the, uh, what will happen when the Assyrians hit. So I want to emphasize this. There's two prophecies here, one to the house of David and one to, the, to Ahaz. The one to the house of David concerns the messianic pro- promise that God will fulfill his promise to David. And the second prophecy, promise or prophecy is related to Ahaz using singular pronouns and promises deliverance before Ahaz's, I mean, before Isaiah's young child is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. Now, when we just, just to summarize the next section in Isaiah 7, 17 to 20, in verse 17, uh, or 18 rather, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the far, that's in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So the bee is introduced. The bee refers to the military of Assyria, but, but it recognizes that the bee in Assyria is going to come and wipe out the land so that nothing is left except honey and curds. In verses 21 to 25, the land is spoken of as being so impoverished after the Assyrian invasion that um, a person will only have one young cow and two sheep. And the result will be that everyone is, is scratching for food. Everyone will eat curds and honey. It's the food of oppression. Then we get into chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, and there's a description in the first 10 verses of all that is going to happen. Now, this is interesting, and I didn't catch this until today, the, the second part of what I'm going to say. In those 10 verses, we have this description of what's going to happen. In verse 8, as Isaiah is describing the devastation of, his, of, uh, of the Assyrian army, he says, He will pass through Judah, he will overflow and pass over, he will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, Emmanuel. Now, any Jew who's read the Torah knows that the land of Israel is God's land. It's not a human being's land. And so here, the statement is that this is your land, Emmanuel, reinforcing the view that Emmanuel is God. But Emmanuel is God is going to be born to a virgin. But then we read in verse 9 and 10, Be shattered, O you peoples, be broken in pieces. This is the destruction of the Assyrians. Um, Verse 10, They'll take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand for what? And what does your English say? Your English version translates this. Notice how it transliterated it the first two times. It's the same word in Hebrew. God is with us, Emmanuel. by not knowing the original, not paying attention to the original, you miss the dots that you need to connect to keep the string of pearls together. So you have Emmanuel in in chapter 7, Emmanuel twice in chapter 8 to show that, that we're still in the same context. And then as we go into... Uh, the end of chapter uh, chapter eight it connects this coming of the Lord of Hosts in verses thirteen through fifteen to the sanctuary, which is the temple, and says that the Lord of Hosts is going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That phrase is used of Jesus in the New Testament, who becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a trap and a snare to who? To the Jews, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. That's exactly what happens when you get into the New Testament. Over what do they stumble? They stumble over the Lord of hosts. And then in verses 16 to 22, Isaiah emphasized that Yahweh is the only hope. But instead, Israel at that time was seeking their hope in idols, in you know New Age necromancy, uh, they're seeking mediums and they're going to astrologers and trying to get answers from everywhere but the revelation of God. 
And then we get into chapter 9, and the context in chapter 9 is one of oppression. It's one of gloom. Light appears to in Galilee of the Gentiles, which is this, the first two verses are quoted in, in the Gospels to indicate the appearance of Jesus, the Messiah, is the light appearing to the Gentiles. And it's in that context of war that we have this promise of a child who will be born who will be called the Prince of Peace. Now, remember in Isaiah, the focus of much of Isaiah is on the coming of the Messiah. There's no suggestion in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or any of the prophets in the Old Testament that there is a time gap between, uh, in, in the sense of two comings of the Messiah, that he'll come once to suffer and once to reign. They're blended together. There's no sense that there's going to be a time difference. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be a suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53, and he's going to be a ruling royal Messiah. That's the emphasis here. He's both. They're not two different Messiahs. They're two different events that define his, his ministry. Now, in Isaiah 2.4, the promise is made regarding the future kingdom that he shall judge between the nations that he here refers to the Messiah and rebuke many people. And at that time when the Messiah appears and all the nations in the first three verses of Isaiah talk about all the nations on the earth are going to stream to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And there God will dwell in the temple and he will judge among the nations, rebuke many people, and they, that is the goyim, the people, the nations, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This part of the verse is taken out of context and is emblazoned over the entry uh, to the United Nations building, which just shows they have a high view of themselves and have claimed a messianic role for themselves to end all war and all violence. But what this verse is, what Isaiah 2.4 tells us is only when the Messiah comes as the true king of righteousness will there be real peace, genuine peace, physical lack of conflict, no war peace on the earth. It won't happen until then. I don't know what the statistics are now. I remember when I was in college and, and taking military science courses, at that time, they gave us statistics that between the end of World War II and, let's say, roughly 1972, so in the period of almost 30 years, uh, 30 years would be 30, uh, 30 years with um, 12 uh, months. That would be 360 months. And there was an av- over that period of time, there were something like seven or 800 wars or armed conflicts, almost two or three a month, somewhere in the world. South America, uh, Asia, somewhere. There's no peace whatsoever. Just wars and rumors of wars continue uh, to increase. So peace is becoming more uh, common. It is less common. Now, I also pointed out last time, it's introducing Isaiah 9-6, that among Jewish translators, there are a number of different ways of handling these titles that are given to this child who is born. The column on the left represents the um, New King James translation. The column on the right represents the Jewish uh, Publication Society, Tanakh of 1917. They chose to just uh, ignore the problem and transliterate it and call his name Pele Yoez El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. That way nobody is going to get confused about who this person is, they just can't read the Hebrew. Christians do the same thing when it comes to baptism. Rather than translating it immerse, they translate it baptism, and that way they avoid the problem. But it's clear from Isaiah 9-6 in the Hebrew text, which is different from one verse off from the English text, that it's talking about the Messianic kingdom and the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish and uphold it through justice and through righteousness henceforth even forever. Now, in the, J, uh, the JPS of 1917 still on the left, but the JPS Tanakh of 1985 is on the left, they translated it, the titles as the mighty God is planting grace, 
the eternal father, a peaceable ruler, which really, I mean, they're inserting verbs where there's just a series of titles. The titles look something like this. The first one is Pele, a term that is only used of God and refers to someone who works a wonder or works a miracle. Uh, it is used of a miracle or the one who performs the miracle. And so this one it represents something extraordinary, something that is always associated only with God. The second title is counselor. It's not wonderful counselor. It's wonderful, comma, counselor, as it was tr- translated in the New King James. Yaetz, which means the one who plans or advisor. He is a, so that's where we get the translation counselor. The third title is that he is mighty God, El Gabor. Gabor is often used of warriors. He is the mighty warrior. Interesting because of that juxtaposition with being the prince of peace. He's the mighty warrior. And then one word, Aviad, Avi meaning my father or the father of and Yad, eternity. Uh, the father of eternity, which is an idiom for one who was eternal or one who has existed from the earliest of times. This is similar, as I pointed out last time, to Micah 5.2. The last phrase is that he is the prince of peace. Now, if you're reading in context in Isaiah, and we're in Isaiah 9, and we've already read Isaiah 2, talking about the fact that when he comes and rules in the Davidic kingdom, the Messiah, at at that time, they will uh, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And now we're talking about his same rule. The next verse talks about the kingdom, uh, uh, in the English text 9-7, that he'll sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom and establish it with judgment and justice that this is a time of peace. So what kind of peace is this in the context of Isaiah? Is it mental peace, a lack of worry? Is it peace with God in a soteriological sense like we have with in Romans 5? Or is this peace in the sense that when the Messiah, the greater son of David comes, he will establish world, true world peace, and there won't be any more Wars. I think it's the latter. That's the context of Isaiah. So now I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. All of this to get us to our wonderful description by Luke of what happens at the birth of Jesus. Now let's just read through the episode here as it begins in verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Luke was a physician by training, but he's a detail person. There's more detail about some of the stories that are also uh, given by Matthew and Mark. There are more details given by Luke than you find in either Matthew or, or, or Mark, which indicates the, the precision where we have indication from Acts that during the time that Paul was in uh, incarcerated in Caesarea by the sea for two years, that it was during that time that Luke is going around in uh, Judea and in the Galilee and interviewing everybody who knew Jesus who was still alive. And they would have been. They would have been uh, less than 30 years uh, from the crucifixion. And so he's interviewing, getting eyewitness accounts. He spoke to Mary. He spoke to Jesus' brothers and sisters. He's, he's interviewed everybody who had anything to do with the life of Jesus. And so he is writing a historical account for the purpose of convincing Theophilus, the one to whom he is writing, that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Theophilus was probably a Greek or a, or a Roman. And to sh- help him clearly understand who Jesus was, and what he did. So he locks it down in space-time on a specific incident. This isn't something that's just generic. It's when Caesar Augustus sent out this decree. Then he expands on that in verse 2 and says, this took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So far we've been able to, to lock down a Quirinius who governed Syria 
There's some difference in terminology, but it seems that he was uh, had a pos- administrative position at two different times. Once was like from about seven to three BC, and then again uh, from about five to eleven or twelve AD, which would allow him to, which puts the birth of Jesus not at zero. That was a miscalculation, but probably around four or five BC. We're told that uh, everyone had to register. So Joseph went up from Galilee. You always go up from Galilee because Israel uh, goes up to the, you go up vertically and you go down. It's not up for us as up as north is always up, but in Israel up is always in terms of elevation. So Joseph goes up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house of bread where the bread of life will be born because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Joseph is a descendant of David and he's going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. Luke is very clear to state they're not married yet. They are in that stage of betrothal and she is pregnant. She's with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the word translated in here is it's an unfortunate translation. It's the same word that was used when Jesus sent the disciples to find the upper room. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, there's a lot of three or four different places where they say that's where the upper room was. Uh, some of us were talking about going to Israel earlier, and in these historical places over there, they'll say this is this like at the uh, Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. This is where Jesus was born, and they believe that that that's exactly where he was born. And, and pro- historical evidence indicates that that there's probably a 98 percent chance they're right. Same thing with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But when it comes to the upper room, on a scale of one to five, one being, well, that's just pure guesswork, and five being that's 98% sure, the upper room is probably a zero. (laughs) It is just made up in three or four different locations. It was just, houses were built with an upper room, which is the guest room. And they left it up because it was usually warmer, so it was the least comfortable room in the house. And if in the winter months or in inclement weather, there was kind of a lower area where they would let the, the, the sheep and the cows come in to get out of the weather. And if you didn't get there in time at Christmas and your cousins got there first, they got the upper room and you got stuck sleeping with the sheep. And there's not an in here. It's not that the concept that we've all grown up with of, Motel Six, <laughs> Holiday Inn, whatever. It's it's more the idea that the guest room was already taken, so they got there late, and they are having to sleep with the animals, and that's why when Jesus is born, he is lay, laid in the manger. Then in verse 8, we're told that in the same country, shepherds living out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. They were there. I'm going to look at this a little more in detail in a different context Sunday morning, uh, some things that we've never uh, covered before related to this. But they're there because this was where the temple flock was kept. The, the sheep for the sacrifices in the temple had to be kept close to the temple within four miles. Bethlehem is very, very close to Jerusalem. When you're standing on the Temple Mount and you look at the horizon, you see the big white wall that the Israelis have built to keep the uh, Arabs out, and just on the other side of that white wall is Bethlehem. So you can you can see it. You can walk there. It's not through the best part of town, so I wouldn't encourage that. But um, so the the shepherds are out there on that sort of north side of Bethlehem towards Jerusalem, and an angel of the Lord. It's clear there's no definite article here, so it's not the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament, who's the pre-incarnate Christ. But an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
Now, where do you get a picture of the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament? The most vivid is Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is before the Lord in all of his glory in in the heavens, in Isaiah uh, 6, uh, 1 through 6, we have a description of this. Here, the glory of the Lord is now bursting forth on the earth. It's interesting to observe that here it's dark and when Jesus is born, everything becomes light. And at the end of his life, when every, in the middle of the day at high noon, when everything is to be bright and he is crucified for our sins, everything goes dark. So it's interesting to observe those kinds of uh, contrasts. So then the angel says to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not just for the Jews. This comes right out of Isaiah. This is for all the nations, all the people. And he says, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a soter, a savior, who is Mashiach, Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Then suddenly, instead of one angel, there's now a multitude and almost an innumerable number of the heavenly host. Host is an antiquated English word for army. Of the heavenly army praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. That's how we read it in the New King James Version. In the New American Standard, NIV, ESV, or one of the other translations, it will read, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. That much is the same. But then it changes. Among people with whom he is pleased. Or it might be translated, people of favor or people of goodwill. Now, the difference is that the majority text manuscripts read, uh, read uh, goodwill towards men in the nominative case. The Greek word that is translated there is the word uh, eudokia, and it means, and eudokia is an interesting word. It doesn't mean goodwill. God, it's not like God's saying, okay, everybody, I'm going to pat everybody on the head and I'm giving you goodwill. It is a word that is always associated with the gracious benevolence of God towards undeserving mankind. So when it, we read goodwill, it is, it is a word that, is, uh, that picks up a lot of the ideas of grace, so they are making an exclamation here that this is a demonstration of God's grace to mankind. Now, in the New American Standard and other translations, they base this on basically three older texts, uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus, and there are those within the history of textual criticism who think that if those three wise men agree, then so be it, bow the knee, and that's the text. But that's not right. This coming uh, March, we're going to have uh, three classes, three lectures on textual criticism by Ron Minton at the uh, Chafer Conference, and we'll learn a lot there. We're wrapping the conference with a course offering that we need to film for Chafer Seminary on textual criticism that will be about 20 hours long. One of the things I just learned about this in having a conversation with a, uh, a man I met at the pre-trib conference this last time, John Hart, who is the head of the Greek department, I believe, up at Moody Bible Institute, and he talked to uh, Maurice Robinson, who is another majority text, one of the most uh, probably living since Zane Hodges died a few years ago, and he said that Maurice Robinson made the point that there are, and I just, I don't remember the number now, but there's hundreds of whole verses, or dozens of whole verses, it's not hundreds, dozens of whole verses that are in the uh, critical text, not just a word here or a word there, but whole verses in the critical text that are in the New American Standard uh, uh, NIV, ESV that aren't in the majority text at all. 
not anything. They, they just a whole verse. And that's just one of the many reasons that I tend to lean uh, toward, and I'm no textual critic, but I tend to lean towards the majority uh, text. And that would read that this is then a, a subject, a nominative case noun, indicating God's gracious benevolence toward mankind in giving the Savior, rather than um, he is... Uh, he is wishing peace among people with whom he is pleased. That can have some theological problems with it. So I think the text is better to go with with the reading of the New King James, but not quite, because goodwill doesn't capture the idea. It's divine goodness or grace toward mankind. But what is the peace that is being announced here? Well, we certainly know from other passages of Scripture that because of Christ's mission to die on the cross for sins, there is peace with God. But is that what this is talking about? We know from other passages of Scripture that if you are a believer trusting in God, then we have a peace that passes all understanding. That's in Philippians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But is that the peace that's being discussed here? The peace that's here is, I believe, is a messianic peace, because what's being announced in the beginning of Jesus' ministry is what? John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is here. And then Jesus came along, and his message during the first two to two and a half years of his ministry was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he sent out his disciples only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first two, two and a half years of Christ's ministry is presenting Jesus as the king, the descendant of David, who would establish his kingdom and a rule of peace upon the earth based on you know on the all the prophecies from Isaiah when the angel appears to Joseph says that that don't don't kick Mary out don't uh, put her aside she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua for he will save his people from their sins this clearly anchors this whole context in the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, which Luke 2.11 does as well, for there is born to you this day, where? In the city of David, Bethlehem, just like Micah 5.2 prophesied, a Savior who is Mashiach, Christ the Lord. And so the announcement of the angels fits all of this, the, the, the glory that's going on in the heavens, the fact that there's this huge angelic army announcing his arrival and his birth. Luke doesn't talk about the magi, but the magi come and they bring gifts, gold, myrrh, and frankincense that are gifts for royalty for a king. So everything that wraps around the birth of Jesus is about the birth of the king. This is why Herod got so upset is because the Magi were looking for the king of the Jews and they weren't looking for him. And he thought he was the king of the Jews. And he was scared to death because they were from Parthia and uh, the Magi usually anointed the king, the emperor of Parthia, and they had already conquered Judea once and run Herod out of town. He had to flee to Rome, uh, whining to the uh, uh, Romans to come and rescue him because he couldn't defend his kingdom. That happened about 30 B.C. And so everything about the birth of Jesus is about the birth of this promised Old Testament messianic king. And so when the uh, angels are making this announcement, they are announcing that the king is here. And that's what the Gospels are about. The king came, but the king was rejected. He was rejected, and he went to the cross. He was crucified, and he paid the penalty for sin in that crucifixion. He will come back as the king. The kingdom has been postponed, and there will be no peace, as was announced here, until he returns, according to Isaiah 2.4, 
And only when he establishes that kingdom will there be peace on earth. And that peace on earth is going to be the result of the fact that he has made peace with God because of sin. He's the peace offering on the cross that provides peace for those who are justified, peace with God, so that we are no longer at enmity with him. And that is our Christmas present. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through these passages, to be reminded again of what a glorious thing Christmas really is, that it is the celebration of the gift of a Savior, the gift of the promised Messiah, the King prophesied for centuries in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. And it is the uh, recognition that he came for the purpose of dying, to pay for the penalty for our sins as a peace offering with God, so that through that peace offering we might have eternal life by simply believing or trusting in him, just as Abraham was justified by faith alone. So we are justified by faith alone and not by works. For by works of righteousness shall no flesh be justified. And we are so thankful for the greatest of all gifts, the gift of righteousness, the gift of a Savior, the gift of our salvation, and that it is totally free. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.